All right, so welcome to this uh, podcast episode, Coffee with Tim and Lua, I guess it's uh, called. And today I'm very excited because I have two very old friends with me. I know some of them since 1999. <laughs> and uh, one that I had uh, battled with in uh, 2004 in the World Barista Championship. Yeah. I have Peter Dupont and Klaus Thompson from the Coffee Collective with me. Hello. Hello, Tim. Hello, Hello. Thanks for uh, coming to uh, visit us and inviting us to a podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. I always love coming to Cof- Coffee Collective in Copenhagen. And for those of you who are listening who doesn't know who Coffee Collective is, shame on you. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, I think, honestly, it's one of the few roasters that I really look up to in uh, the world. Uh, and basically, mainly because of the topic we're going to talk about today, which is transparency, coffee prices, paying farmers a good price, but also because as a company, you just seem to do everything right with HR, treating your employees well, people have opportunities for careers in your company, you are now B Corp certified, that we're also going to mention. So for uh, us as a small company, it's uh, very aspiring to look at towards Copenhagen and see what you're doing. So always if I'm in doubt of what's right or wrong, I can just think what would Klaus and Peter do? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's very, uh, very kind words from, uh, from you, especially Tim. It's a lot. Maybe you could uh, just quickly introduce who you are and uh, you know, how you started and so that people get to know the company a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, I'm Peter Dupont. I'm one of the co-founders of Coffee Collective. I'm CEO today. We started, we met each other at another coffee company here in Denmark called Estate Coffee, where we worked for many years, very inspired by the Danish chef Klaus Meyer. Um, and I think we were similar passionate about coffee and quality and uh, thought there was just a world that we could develop and found some common grounds on, on building a, a business on that. Nice. And Klaus is the second co-founder. Yeah, along with the with Casper, who's the third co-founder, and that you just saw down in the roastery slaving yeah. away while we're up here <laughs> chatting <Just> away. Chatting. <laughs> <laughs> Each got to do what you do best, right? So, uh, yeah, and uh, I mean, uh, yeah, we competed all the way back in two thousand and four in the world championship, yeah. where you beat me. I became third place, yeah. but it was. I'm sorry. Well, I think it was also your third. <laughs> Third or fourth try? So. It was the third, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you're you're at that time already a legend in the in the coffee industry. So I remember like meeting you there and like being completely wild and and it's been amazing to to follow each other's paths through these years, seeing both our companies grow side by side. And it's funny how we founded our companies basically the same year. Yeah. Uh, that we started our own roastery and coffee shop and had similar ideas. And uh, yeah, my uh, my role here today is is mostly in, in the coffee quality in the serving side of the business, okay. uh, as well as overseeing our marketing efforts, um, which I think more about as communication efforts than actual marketing, because mm-hmm. that's what I think we are passionate about is to share insights into coffee and the story behind coffee and share also how you can brew better coffee at home with with a large amount of people. Mm. 
But personally, when I think about Coffee Collective, there's one thing that stands out always that we've been very vocal about for a long time, and that's the importance of transparency in coffee and also paying the good price to the farmers. And in fact, I think you still have on your bags uh, the price you pay to the farmer uh, on, on the bag. Is that right? Yes, we converted it into a quality bonus. Okay. Because we got the experience that that exact technical number, uh, $4.3 a pound FOB, got very confusing for a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, that was the feedback we got on it. So we, we thought, how can we make something where we're still transparent to the consumer? Because that's the main point, that when you are a consumer and you buy a bag of coffee, it's important to know how has that coffee been traded, what payment is behind that. Not just knowing that the company for some coffee had paid, has paid some good price, but for that particular coffee I'm buying now, what has the farmer been paid? Mm. So we did that calculation into a quality bonus, which is like a percentage on top of the market price that we've paid as a bonus because the quality is better than average market coffee. Yeah. Uh, so that is still in the bags. Yeah. But maybe we should uh, dumb this down because we have listeners that are already working in coffee, but we also have a lot of listeners who don't work in coffee. Yeah. And, um, we need to explain, and I think you're the best one to explain this, Peter. Why is it so important to pay the, a better price to the farmer? And why is it important to be transparent about it? Yeah, I think maybe if I should go back to what I said at the start, when, when we were very excited in the early days as baristas. Uh, also, you mentioned in 99, we were competing at, at, against each other in the Norwegian Championship. Uh, I think in those early days, we were all just very excited about coffee and the flavors. and the craft of being a barista and what you can change of flavors from just the average bad coffee. And then if you do, if you're a little bit careful and so on, you can create something very exciting. And, and that was going on in the early 2000s, as I remember, a lot of excitement on the flavors of coffee. But at the same time, what we realized was that in those years, there was an international coffee crisis going on mm. that we didn't think about as baristas. And I think few people in our end of the coffee chain knew about because it was mainly a crisis for, for the farmers where the market price was as low as, as it was in the 1960s in nominal terms. Um, I'm, I'm having a, the first hour with every new employee where I'm also explaining this because I think that's a foundation for how we think about coffee, that we, were, we are very passionate about the flavors of coffee, but at the same time when we started getting that excitement, we also realized that the farmers are really not getting there. Uh, a decent price they can live from. Um, and that the, the price was, was that far uh, down in, in, in those years, of course, meant that a lot of farmers couldn't afford to, to, to uh, make the business run as a farmer um, and left their production and so on. And that just showed very clearly to us young, excited people, I think, that the coffee market is not working. Yeah. It's broken. Yeah. There's something completely wrong in the coffee market. Um, and that's where we hope and think transparency is one of the tools. If you look historically at the coffee market, it's been built up in the colonial system where transparency, I guess on purpose, were, were not there. Yeah. Uh, the last colonies of Africa got independence in the 1980s, so it's not further away than it's the lifetime of some of us. Mm. Um, and that means that coffee has been produced up until very recently in colonies and that global market has been formed in colonies and it's not that far away as we would wish mm. and I personally think there are still a lot of structures left in that global market that are post-colonial 
And one of it is the lack of transparency and the amount of exotic stories that sells coffee. Yeah. One of which, one of those stories would be like a person like us going down to Africa in Indiana Jones outfits and sleeping under cars and finding yeah, exactly. the best coffee and yeah. you know being excited that it was so cheap but it was so good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. It, it's an absurd thing, and I remember this from when we started the, the company as well, and it's, I, I think it's basically on, on a global scale hasn't changed that there's an absurdity in the fact that you can charge really high prices for coffee in the developed countries, in the Western or the global North. Um, I mean, prices for a cafe latte in a Starbucks on any high street of Europe is through the roof. Yeah. It's a lot of money being turned over in those parts, but it's... Uh, it's actually getting less and less money that makes it way down to the farmers. And you said before, it's nominal terms. A farmer was getting paid like in the 1960s, but if you take inflation into account, they're getting less than they were in the 1960s. And that's completely crazy. Yeah. That's not building a world of coffee that has a future. It's not building on trying to uh, advocate for you know, higher quality or experimentation or changing into producing coffee organically and all these things that is on the wish list of many of us in the developed countries. Yeah. So for us, it's, it's just so paramount to making a future in coffee for all of us that we make sure we provide more value back to the farmers. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's basically the premise of our company is why we started was to try and Build a company that had that building from the beginning and say, let's start with a start all over new company. Let's do it right. And it meant a lot of challenges like that. We couldn't just have like this broad range of coffees on the menu, especially in the early days, because being uh, in direct relationship with single farmers and buying directly also mean we had to build a certain volume for it to make sense, both to make sense logistically on shipping coffees, but also to make sense for each of the farmers. Um, and for a number of years, it was a little bit challenging that we had very few coffees on the menu. Mm. On the other hand, it also was completely the ideology of what we want to do is to try and not just build us as a brand, just having Coffee Collective being known, but at the same time having each of the farmers being a brand entity on their own. Mm. And I, I think like when I look back, this is one of the, the most successful things of our company is that we managed to build brands around each of the farmers. So we have customers coming in asking not just for a Kenyan, but for Kieni, not just for a Guatemalan, but for Vista Hermosa. And so that brand name of each of these farms is so strong on their own that I think that has much more like a, yeah, a much longer shelf life, mm. you can say, than if it's just us as, as a company who, who owns the quality in that, that regard. And I think it's important to, to also make that knowledge available to people that the quality doesn't happen because of a roaster. It happens because of the farmer and the roaster, but also whoever brews the coffee. There are these, all these links in the chain and it's, it's never stronger than the weakest link. Mm. Yeah. But how can uh, you mention a little bit like, uh, how can a consumer know that uh, <clears throat> companies are paying a good price? I mean, especially in our part of the industry, which people refer to as specialty coffee. I don't like to use it, that term at all because uh, anyone can use it just like you. They can use direct trade or whatever, yeah. and it loses it, its meaning when people just start to use it loosely. So 
I, but when we talk about small groceries like us that are trying to maybe buy direct or through importers, everyone seems to market the same thing, that they're paying more, the quality gets better when you pay more, uh, the farmer has a better life when they pay more. But how can the consumer know? Because I know as a coffee buyer that this is not always true. <laughs> oh, yes. That's, yeah. 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 It's, it's like the big fraud of the specialty company world in that regard is that everybody says the same. And I have yet to meet a roaster who don't themselves think that they pay a good price for coffee. Yeah. And clearly they are not. Like clearly we as an industry are not paying a good enough price for coffee overall. Mm. If that was the case, then we wouldn't have starving farmers in many of the producing countries. Yeah. And that's back to what Peter said is that transparency, that's the answer. That's the way that we can get people to see, well, what are the real numbers? It's also the way you and I as roasters, we can have a conversation. And you and I have had this sitting in Kenya many years actually, yeah. talking about prices, yeah. talking about, well, what is actually a good price? Mm. Like what is like, where, where should we be? And you look at the, the auction, you look at the top paying lots in the auction and both of us are shaking our heads and saying that's like not near what that coffee should be getting. Yeah. Um, and we know that a lot of them of the better qualities and a lot of higher prices goes on direct sales, but still there, there's a lack of transparency. There's no talk about, well, what is the good price for, you know, some of these most outstanding lots of coffee? Yeah, I think uh, that's, the question about the consumer, I think that's a very difficult one, but, but there's a little bit what you point to here, Klaus, also. The thing about that is, I think actually, if you turn a little bit positive, there's a lot of people in this industry who actually wants to pay a good price. Yeah. Uh, and then the confusion is maybe, what is a good price? And, and I think to, to that, uh, I know that the, there's this transaction guide made, which is out of, of some of the transparency movement in COVID going on. That is done yearly by the, uh, the economist at Emory University and a group of people around that where they publish prices paid for real quality at different quality levels on, from a lot of data donors around the world that send that in. And I think that, that's, that's one instrument for people in the industry at least to look up instead of just looking at the seed price where coffee is sold on papers 15 times as much as what's physically produced in the world. Yeah. Uh, where it's actually speculation that drives it. That's not a good reference for, for the right price. I think this transaction guide, that's a real physical uh, data and also divided on quality, which is an interesting place to look. If you are in the industry and you wonder what is the good price for this quality, then you can at least see that this is what other roasters buy. And yeah. probably still not enough really, but, but it's, it's, it's a better tool than the C price as a reference, I think. Yeah, I agree. I couldn't agree more. Like, uh, I remember I went to a coffee exhibition. There was a lecture about a roaster who was so proud they were paying 10% above market price. But when you saw the market price, they were referring to commodity coffee price, which is not the price for quality coffee. Mm. But they were referring to that and were very proud of paying 10% more. But the fact of the matter was that those 10% didn't even cover the cost of production for the coffee. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So I think I agree, like the specialty coffee transaction guide, is yeah. that the name? Yeah, that's a good starting point. Uh, but still, I, I feel uh, when you look at pr the prices that I see there, uh, I mean, it's based on a lot of data donors, so it's an average price, of course. But uh, it, I spend a lot of time in Colombia and knowing what people are paying in Colombia it's not enough. And mm. the reason why I can say that is because you don't really see any change on the farmers who are getting that price. You yeah. don't see any investment in the farm. Mm. You don't see any change in infrastructure. 
they're not paying the pickers more you know so i i think it's a starting point yes for sure but as an industry we aren't paying enough i think no yeah. no and it is only showing what's actually paid so it's it's not necessarily like what is the right price no. it's, uh, but it's it's a starting point for a reference i think um but look, jumping to the other part for the consumer i mean that's to me the real challenging one because we can also sit and discuss. Uh, I, I've had the talk also with uh, with uh, Peter Roberts from Emory University, who's the economist behind the transaction guide about what is what should be the right price for coffee today. Yeah. And he did some calculations. Uh, I'm not sure if it's correct to cite him because I don't have the the exact numbers behind it. But he ended up and saying a correct market price today from his economic uh, academic way of analyzing the market would be around I think it was four to five dollars a pound yeah. for coffee. Um, and now we talked about this nominal uh, price crisis we had in the early zeros, uh, referring to that it was the same nominal price as in the 1960s. If you try to account for inflation, it's very complex because you have a lot of different uh, countries with different uh, inflation rates and so on. Uh, but then there's always the the shortcut, which is not really exact, but can be a rule of thumb. Uh, that's the same as when you compare between countries the purchasing power. So like if you earn 100 kroners in Denmark, how much can you buy for that compared to if you earn 100 Danish kroners in, yeah. in Norway, how much can you buy for that? Uh, you would have less purchasing power in Norway than in, in Denmark. Mm. Uh, not looking at the currency rate and so on, but just uh, the same amount of, of, of kroners. That's that's important for how it feels or how, how how is it to live from a certain amount of money. There you have the rule of thumb or the or the guesstimate that you can do the Big Mac index. So what's the price of a Big Mac? How, how many Big Macs can you buy for your monthly salary? That that you can compare between countries because that Big Mac price is is kind of it's the same ingredients, it's the same system behind and everything. Mm. So that's a common way of of comparing purchasing power in different economies, um, which is of course not 100% exact. But I tried once, looked up historical data in the US, what was a Big Mac in the 1960s? And what was it, I think this was 2015, I looked at it so and so, what was it in 2015? And that was like an eight time development. Yeah. So if you could add that to coffee, it's, it's just uh, my own experiment, a thought experiment probably, but if you add that to coffee, you end up at around uh, four to five dollars a pound as well. Yeah. So I think looking for where are we, what would be the right price? I have this pers personal feeling that for the market quality, maybe four and five dollars would be the right price. Mm. Uh, I hope some economists can do that calculation more exact. Um, but it's just to talk about, and then we talk specialty coffee, we talk better quality coffee, then of course that demands extra investment, extra yeah. work and everything. So. That's just building on top of that. Yeah. Um, and this is in a market where specialty coffee is today sometimes traded at like two and a half, three US dollars per pound. Yeah. Like it's not uncommon to see those amounts floating around. So it's yeah. there's still it's so far from where it should be, even in our like segment of, of coffee. Yeah, I agree. I, I think uh, from memory, the <coughs> average price in this transaction guide uh, and then we're just talking about the average of independent of volume and everything. But I think it was around three and a half dollars per pound. Yeah. So that means it's too low. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, definitely. Yeah. Because that's 
special to coffee, I think, yeah. than most of what's in there reported. I just had a conversation with uh, one of the farmers we buy from, and uh, he said in his country the fertilizer price had gone up 300%. Uh, electricity bills were much higher. Uh, at certain days during the week they didn't have electricity. Uh, labor cost was going up and it was more and more difficult to get labor because of migration to the US. And uh, he said uh, he had been selling his coffee for the more or less the same price to his clients for you know, almost 10 years. Mm. And he said, now I think I need to ask for maybe 50 cents more per pound. And he had done it with a few clients. And the answer he got was, no, we are not going to pay more. Wow. Yeah. And that's the reality for a, for a yeah. farmer. Yeah. So yeah. what yeah. do you need to do then? Well, then you need to start cutting costs. Cutting costs could be not fertilizing the amount they need. That means production also goes down. And quality goes down. Yeah. It could mean that he doesn't hire the same amount of pickers. So the picking quality goes down, ripeness goes down. It's, it's such a you know, race towards the bottom in yeah. terms of quality. And there's no investment. It's so short-sighted for these roasters to say, okay, let's save this half a dollar per pound now. And it's just no investment into their future of business either. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's it's a, such a weird paradox that the yeah. coffee's in that way. Yeah, and I mean, if if I as a customer came into your coffee shop and you said today we have to raise the price for our cappuccinos with five crowns, I wouldn't say no. Yeah, <laughs> like, I mean, I would just accept it and pay more. Yeah, because yeah. I understand that you also have uh, increasing costs. That's just the way society works. But in coffee, it seems to be like, no, we should pay the same price like we have done for 50 years. Mm. Yeah. Take it or leave it. Yeah, yeah. the same yeah. price as when it was slave labor yeah. producing mm. coffee, which mm. to some extent you can argue it still is in a lot of countries. It's modern day slave labor in a lot of yeah. countries. At okay. least it's exploiting pickers for sure. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, that's related to, you say, when you, you need to cut your costs, one thing is quality, it can... Uh, that you can move it to, lower the quality, or the workers you have, lower the cost that you have yeah. uh, with them. Uh, or it could be in the environment that you can uh, save on, on uh, protective measures for, for the environment. Yeah. So I think in these days where we talk more about sustainability, I think in many ways sustainability and quality goes hand in hand. Mm. It can go different ways also, but there are also many ways where it goes hand in hand. And when mm. we put like a price pressure on the farmers, it's both quality and sustainability that that we also put a pressure on. Um, and I think that, I mean, that's where, where we need to also go because I think today we have a lot of consumers who are very conscious about sustainability and they would like to pay more. And, and I think there's, there should be a possibility for us to communicate some of this in there. Uh, first of all, I, I do believe that a lot of consumers, when they pay a little more than 100 kroner for 250 grams of our coffee in Denmark, um, they're happy to know that a good share of that has gone to the farmer. Mm. But I think there's also th th these consumers who, who, who knows this, they want to do good, for the, they want to ma make the sustainable choice with their money. Um, a lot of them will be looking for the organic certified coffee. Um, and I think that can be, I don't know, maybe you have already had a, made a podcast about organic certified coffee. It's <laughs> its its own theme to discuss for, yeah. for a long time. Uh, but I think we can cut it short and say, well, it's not the full secret behind sustainable coffee yeah. that it's organic certified there's a lot more to sustainability in the coffee industry than mm. that um, and i think after years of just paying or like a whole market that is just built on paying too low prices of course we can't 
demand the farmers to now do this and that to be more sustainable before we give them a price where it's yeah. just sustainable for their life to, to do their business. I completely agree. Like uh, This is actually the first time this year, it was I started this year, the conversation with three other farmers we buy from, to maybe look into converting a small part of their farm and try out organic practices. If it was five years ago, they would say, no, we don't have the economy to do that. Mm. But because we have been paying a good price for them for many years, they've finally come to a point where they don't really need to invest a lot more in infrastructure and important things for them. So now they can see that, okay, we can maybe try a hectare of our land and, and try it out. But uh, before we have the economical grounds for it, it's impossible, I think, to, mm. to ask for any certification because it just means more cost for, for the farmer. And, you know, I see photos of huge farms in Brazil. You know, they have landing strips on the farm and everything is mechanically picked and it's sprayed and everything. They are Rainforest Alliance certified because they have a couple of trees in the corner of a farm and uh, they are Fairtrade certified and uh, they have all these certifications and they market the coffee as being very sustainable. Mm -hmm. And if you just know, you know, a fraction about agriculture, you, it's not, you don't need to be a rocket science to understand that that's not sustainable mm. because they can't continue growing coffee that way for 100 years. Mm. And I think uh, we should, this maybe should be another podcast, but we shouldn't be afraid of saying that coffee production in general is not sustainable. Mm. We're cutting down forests. Yeah. Most farmers are relying on, you know, petroleum-made uh, mineral fertilizers um, and uh, pesticides and fungicides. But before we before they have enough economy uh, security, they cannot start converting or anything because in, in normal terms, it means they're going to lose a little bit of production. And, mm. uh, and if nobody is willing to pay for that, they're not going to do it for sure. It's their livelihood. This is also why I feel like the, the first certification that should ever happen in coffee in, in, on a global scale should be that roasteries pay well for the coffee because mm. we don't get to ask all these demands we don't get to come with our long list of things that the farmer has to live up to to get a certification stamp until we provide the economic sustainability for them so that they can actually thrive in a in a sustainable business mm. um, all these other things will never happen if they're still you know scratching uh, on to to try and make an income you know it's uh, yeah there has to be a change in that before we can move on with organic or all these other social aspects of sustainability. Mm. But let's convert it to a consumer because I just had a talk the other week for a couple of students. Uh, there were more than just a couple, but <laughs> a group of students. And uh, of course, they are, you know, in general, they don't have a lot of money on their hand because they're students. So they were asking, like, which coffee in the supermarket can I buy and know that I'm paying enough for the farmer? And when you, Peter, are saying that coffee should probably cost around $5 per pound, a pound is about half a kilo, so that means $10 per kilo around there. Uh, so that, you know, that should be the cost price for the green coffee. And if you're in the supermarket and you find coffee that is costing less than $10 per kilo, yeah. then the answer is definitely you're not paying enough. Yeah. I mean, that's just the reality, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and then it's it's sad to see that uh, I just yesterday heard that someone had bought one kilo at uh, for forty nine Danish kroners, which is yeah. what five dollars. So, I mean, there's definitely in supermarket coffee is very few that that uh, 
that uh, is paid sufficiently for the farmer to get any price. But uh, when, when I said, I also feel like adding it a little bit, we're also in a niche and recognizing that. We're in a niche with specialty coffee, or at least our coffees, where we put a lot of work into quality. Where it's not just the farmer who has put in. We also, at the roastery, roast much smaller batches than a big roastery roasts, and we probably have more man hours in, in, in handling that very carefully to take care of quality. Yeah. Um, and so on also, we have extra costs, and so, so I think in our niche, it should also be that the consumer also values that quality. Mm-hmm. And I do think they do, otherwise they have lots of possibilities to go somewhere else. Um, but I could imagine supermarket coffees where, you would, where the farmer would have been paid a good price, let's say $5 a pound, and then it would still be cheaper than what we can sell at, yeah. because it's like it has been through a system of economies of scale and big production. So it could be cheaper than ours, but of course with less uh, quality, also flavor quality in, yeah. in the cup. And I guess also the problem can be like if you go to a supermarket in Norway, you can find like really big commercial low quality coffees for a very high price yeah. because it has been imported and there's you know a lot of middlemen that mm. has taken care of the roasted coffee. So yeah. I, I don't think price is the kind of final say whether the farmer was paid well yeah. or not. No, no, no. And you can find fair trade coffee that is, you know, extremely cheap. Yeah. yeah. So what can we do? Like yeah. you mentioned transparency, and uh, but how? Like maybe we should mention the pledge. That's something yeah, that's, that you were the driver behind. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a. Uh, uh, I mean, we were a network that been looking a lot on transparency, and you've been part of that as well, Tim. Um, where we've been meeting up a few times and trying to figure out what can we do together as roasteries to, to push the agenda. And and uh, was it in 2019 where we, or was it 18, 19, 18? I think it was 18. That was when it was developed at least. Yeah. We went together a number of roasteries and said, okay, what is transparency? I mean, everyone can also claim we are transparent. Yeah. So what do we mean by that? What's the important thing uh, about being transparent? And I think what we did was we sat together and we over a period of time exchanged ideas of what's the most important parameters of transparency um, and ended up defining, was it 10 criteria or something like that, that we have written down uh, as a group, developed in a, in a, in a group of, of very ambitious roasters, I would say, on transparency. And then we made it public and uh, sent it out in, in, the, in the industry and invited people to sign on, on this and say, we also pledge to be transparent on these parameters, mm-hmm. um, like have a yearly report stating like what's the volume you bought from, what's the name of the producer, where is the producer situated and so on, and what price has been paid and, and, and some other criteria on this to get those basic facts out there. Um, and I still think that it's very important parameters we have there and I still see unfortunately companies who do claim a lot about transparency, who also actually managed to talk about price, but without being transparent on those numbers. Also companies, I mean, I think the positive thing is there's a discussion now in the industry, in our end of the industry, about what's the right price for the farmers. Mm. But I also like personally get a little bit frustrated when I see other companies coming up and talking about a lot about these prices and then kind of arguing that what we do is only buying the top of, of, of a producer's uh, coffee at a very high price and then they have maybe 90% that that's their main crop, they are not selling at a good price, so what's more important, selling those 10% at a really good price or the 90% at a little bit less 
good price. You can discuss yeah. that, but anyway, what matters is what is that good price? So yeah. if you sell 10% at, let's say, $15, uh, or if you sell the 90% at $1.5 or like $2, I mean, maybe the $15 is still better. Uh, yeah. But uh, so, so you can't make that discussion without talking real numbers. And I think that's somehow it's just needed that we get, we need to get those real numbers on the table. And the challenge is, of course, for consumers. I mean, we can't expect consumers to, to, to know what's the right price in no. dollars and so on. But maybe some of them. I mean, there are also our consumers are also very different in how dedicated they are to quality. We have some that are like, uh, we've been talking about it many times, and like when we communicate quality, we have uh, some of those experts, local experts in their group of friends. Everyone knows this is the coffee expert in, in my network of friends. And maybe there can be some sustainability experts or something also. I mean, I guess there is. I mean, in many uh, friend groups, you have someone who knows this person is the one who really cares about sustainability. Mm. If we can get those people to understand a little bit about numbers, so get some ambassadors of mm. this that can communicate it from there. Uh, maybe that's a path. And anyway, I think it's we, we need to try and communicate this because otherwise we'll just compete on exotic stories. And yeah. and then it's depending on the size of the marketing department. And it's completely untransparent for most people to, to go look at groceries. I mean, there's like, I feel like every week I see a new grocery popping up in Denmark. Like I get an Instagram advert for someone i'm like who are these oh wow okay there's another one roasting here and you go in and check it out and they all say the same thing it's all like copy pasted from whatever we wrote 10 years ago or stuff like that about like oh yeah we're working directly with the farmers blah 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 and then as soon as you go in and look a little closer you can see like well the whole price list is or the whole coffee list is just basically whatever exporter in hamburg was offering and so that tells me, okay, it's definitely not bought in, like directly from the farmer, first of all. But I do think the pledge is one of those places that you can look for that it will actually say, okay, these groceries that there's only like a handful in the Nordic countries, these have actually committed to something. Mm. And you can always uh, point fingers and say, oh, it's not enough. It's uh, only the FOB price or whatever people have been, have been commenting on. Yeah. And that's like, well, that's a starting point. And the FOB price is better than no price. Yeah. And most of the roasters actually go the step further like you do and like we do and publish the full transparency table of all the coffees, producer or farm gay, whatever you want to call it, with those coffees where that's applicable. And then the FOB price for the coffee farms that export themselves or wherever else you can only get the FOB number. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, for me, I would say that's my advice to consumers is look for the few companies who've actually signed this. Mm. I mean, that's if, if you want to work in a transparent and sustainable manner in terms of coffee prices, that's the way to go. Yeah. And so far, I think it's the best bet. There's, just, there's no other alternatives out there. So until someone comes up with a better alternative, I'm, I'm all ears for that. But so far, I haven't seen that. Yeah, I, I, I actually have been... because. On the pledge website, it's what's the website again? The pledge.coffee, is it? I don't remember. Transparency.coffee. Transparency.coffee, yes. And I, I went one day just to, for fun to see are the companies who signed, are they actually publishing prices? And at least the ones that I checked out, they were all doing it. And I, I personally don't really care if what the prices were, but the fact that they are willing to be transparent about it says a lot you know yeah. they're willing to put their head on the chopping board and say 
okay, maybe they're not paying a higher price, but at least they can see what other companies are paying and mm. maybe they realize, oh shit, you know, I need to pay a little bit more. And this is one of the comments that I got um, from, uh, from uh, many years ago uh, in a coffee exhibition. There was a lady on stage saying, uh, I had just published my transparency report right before the uh, symposium in the SEA. And there was a producer in Honduras who, who actually on stage said like, this transparency report is important because I, as a producer, can see what the prices team is paying. So I know what price I can demand for my coffee to other roasters. Mm. So for me, I'm, I'm, when we publish our transparency reports, it's actually not really meant for the consumers because it's very technical. Like what is an FOB price? What is farm gate price? Of course, we try to explain it. But I mean, the majority of people are not interested in even reading about it. Of course, you have some ambassadors that are. But for me, it's actually more important to try to inspire other coffee companies to, to do a little bit better and just think about, you know, when they pay, let's say, $10 per pound for a coffee from an importer, what was the actual farmer paid? You know, because uh, there are you know, middlemen in, in between there as well. Yeah. And um, maybe also get them to think about when they just throw around the concepts like direct trade, which I know you were one of the first ones to use that term. Uh, that term has almost become meaningless because everyone is using it. Hmm. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Definitely, but I, I do want to follow on one thing with the consumer side of things is that I, I really am a firm believer that for real change to happen, consumers need to be on board. I think whenever it's consumer driven and it's a demand from consumers, that's when we see real change. That's what like happened with organic produce mm. in Denmark was that it finally grew to a size where people were demanding it so that you couldn't get away having a supermarket without a big aisle of organic produce. Um, and the same thing I do hope will happen with coffee, that there's this consumer demand that says, if you're not transparent, if you're marketing coffee and saying you're doing all these things, but you're not willing to open your books, then we don't buy it. Mm. We don't trust it. And I think that level of trustworthiness is something that it, it's key to success. Mm. If, if you lose that trust to your audience, to your guests or your customers, then, then you're nothing anymore. Mm. And I think that, that will be happening. And it's what we happen or hope will happen with showcasing these prices is not that, that we can necessarily change everything, but we hope to create this ripple effect, this drop in the water that'll create ripples that'll spread out. And then suddenly it'll become a wave and it'll actually hit the big players on the market, these multinational conglomerates who mm. are basically controlling the price to, to a large extent. So that's my take on the consumer side of thing. But then with direct trade, I mean, that's... Can I just add before yeah, direct trade yeah. also because... I, I <laughs> you know that's going to go down. With, with, a, yeah, with the consumer side, I also think something is just to look, do the company present any numbers? Or yeah. do they just talk about words, transparency and all that stuff? Do they present actual numbers? And then maybe you don't know if, if, if $2 a pound is a good price or $6 a pound is a good price. But if they just show... If the company just shows some numbers on the website, on the back or wherever, then I think it's a good place to start because then in the industry, if you are contributing as a roaster to create that movement and like the lady you talk about referring to that she can learn from that, those mm -hmm. numbers. And so, so that will happen like sometime, some kind of a internal development control mechanism, I think, in the industry that we, if, if you publish numbers, then there are also other people who can understand it and, and look mm -hmm. at it. So maybe the consumer don't understand if it's a good price or not, but just the fact of having that number. Yeah. 
mm. presented. I think that's a good tool to look for as a consumer. Yeah. Do they actually present numbers or just talk about numbers? Mm. Um, and then we can go to the IoT for my sake. <laughs> and and a note on that, because uh, at least in the last five years, it's gaining popularity to market your company as being sustainable. That's mm -hmm. kind of the, the word that is tossed around all the time. Mm -hmm. And in Norway, we actually have a consumer guide uh, made by Norwegian consumer. Uh, there's like an organization that is to protect consumers. There is a guide that says you're not allowed to say that we are sustainable or we are more sustainable because you have to say we are more sustainable than and refer to something. Mm -hmm. But yeah. in most cases, and still in Norway, most companies just say we are more sustainable or we are sustainable. But they don't refer to anything what why they are sustainable. No. So no. I think that's one of the things we could also yeah. think about when we market uh, coffee prices and that we're paying. You know, we are paying more than yeah, we're paying more than the sea market. But you know, that's not the same product. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you if you're really saying that yeah. you're paying more for coffee. Yeah in the quality segment you actually need to refer to that transaction guide price i think mm. and pay more than that mm. otherwise you can say that you're paying the average or or yeah. below average in some cases yeah. but let's talk about uh, direct trade because yeah. you're one of the inventors of that term aren't you i guess the link is like that transparency you can claim transparency but if you don't show the numbers you're not transparent yeah. you can claim sustainability but if you don't take the actions you're not sustainable and it's the same i guess with direct trade that we kind of started up a business model where, where we wanted to do business directly with the farmers to make sure we had some experiences. We bought some excellent Ethiopian coffees, paid high prices to, to some importers in, in EU. In and the old company. In the old company, yeah, yeah before we started this company. Yeah. Uh, and, and, uh, and there was amazing coffee. And then we went down to visit the, the farmers and we realized they, they had closed down because they couldn't afford to pay their members. It was a cooperative. They didn't have any resource to pay the members for cherries. Yeah. And it was like an amazing producer. We paid high prices in our end of, of the coffee chain. Uh, and they actually also won coffee competitions uh, in Ethiopia the, wow. the years. And that they couldn't make the business run just showed us how clearly this, we need to make sure that the farmers are getting a better price. Yeah. And that, is that those extra money we pay as a roaster for better quality reaches the ones who are making that extra work. Yeah. So that was some of the basic ideas that we needed to make contract to make business directly with the producers, the ones making extra work for better quality. But, but also have it verifiable, right? So that yeah. you had contracts where you could actually verify that price. So it was from the beginning something we put a lot of emphasis on saying like, we want to be able to open the books and show what was paid. If a journalist came knocking on our door, mm. we wanted to be able to show this is what the farmer signed as the seller and us as the buyer mm. yeah. and not to whatever uh, holding company in Switzerland from mm. some exporter. Like, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. also for the farmer to know that we are the buyers. Yeah. Um, that's also important, I think, for farmers to, to dedicate their work, that mm. they know where it's the coffee going. A lot of farmers just produce a bag of coffee and a truck is picking it up and that's the end of the story. Yeah. It's much more motivating for all of us. It's like, you, I think you made the example sometime as a barista, if you're making uh, the beautiful uh, rosettas on, on the cappuccino and you're serving it through a hole in the wall, yeah. you don't get any response from any guest. It's not the same level of motivation for, for, for your creativity and all the effort you put into your work. And it's a little bit like a lot of, I think, farmers are in. And that's also why another part of our business model was that we wanted to visit the farmers yeah. every year to give them their feedback on how we in, enjoyed the coffee, how our customers enjoyed it. And, what could be better and so on, to have that close dialogue about quality. Yeah. 
So we developed that business model in, in uh, 2007, in early days of 2007, and looked for a name for it. And that's when we, we heard that some good companies in the US were using the term direct trade. Mm. And, uh, and we reached out and, and said, this is a, this a great term because, I mean, just from hearing the term, you can kind of understand, yeah, someone doing direct business. And, yeah. and maybe there's a little bit of a reference to fair trade that gives a good positive association. So we thought it was a really strong term. So we reached out to Jeff Watts, who I think was the one um, from Intelligentsia Coffee who came up with it in the coffee industry. Uh, Legendary coffee buyer for those who don't know yeah. him and a, a really passionate coffee buyer as well. Yeah, yeah. 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 and very for inspiring sure. for sure. Um, yeah, and we reached out and said he, we heard he, they used the term and he's, if we could use it as well for our business model. And I remember he, he wrote back and said, yeah, you'd be happy if, if you use it, but please protect it. Protect the integrity or something like that about yeah. it, he, he said. Um, um, and we actually take that very, took that very literally. So we actually made it as a trademark in Denmark because we wanted to, to protect it, that it could be only used for, for a certain model. And then every time we heard someone else in Denmark starting using it, we reached out and said, it's great, you, you use it. Would you like to join us uh, and then work on those principles that we pay at least 25% above the fair trade price and we visit the farmer every year and then we say this is direct trade. Yeah. Um, and and another, a good handful of other roasteries jumped on that. Uh, so we were kind of, for many years, we were actually working together in Denmark, a number of roasteries saying this is what we what direct trade means in coffee in, in Denmark. Mm. Um, but there was also quite a few roasteries that we reached out to who had already written direct trade on their backs and so on. And then when you presented this to them, they're like, oh, oh no, it, like we just actually <laughs> want to use it and we don't want to show like have direct contracts. We don't want to show what we paid for the coffee, like all these things. We're like, well, then you don't get to call it direct trade. Yeah. And it worked well, like uh, sort of almost controlling it in Denmark. But as soon as we got outside of the Danish borders, we had no control. Yeah. And uh, over the years, it just got so misused. And it was like everyone could claim it. So in the end, we were kind of fed up with it. And then I think we reached like the peak of our frustration when a large Swedish chain entered Denmark, put directorate on the back. We again reached out as we've done with many other roasters. And they send us back this uh, big note from their lawyer saying, oh, yeah, we'll, we, we will uh, contest this in court. Okay. And at that point, we was like, well, whatever. Yeah. Let's rather concentrate on what we do, concentrate on being more transparent and showcasing and ho hopefully lead by example rather than try to yeah, help the market uh, control this term. Yeah. Uh, and to some degree, I think it's a pity because when we talk about consumers, it was such an easy, understandable term for people to decipher. Mm. Like when they saw that it was a, a gateway to open a conversation, which I always find to be the most interesting, when we can engage consumers and have them asking more questions. Um, so in a, in a way, it's a pity we can't use it anymore. Uh, in other ways, I think the quality bonus now does that. It's that kind of like, it doesn't answer anything, but it, it creates some kind of interest, some questions that you can then build on and then you can elaborate. And mm. if people have time and the curiosity, you can take them into this whole world and show them this podcast, for example, and they can dive into the rabbit hole and mm. start to understand it. But I still think there's a big gap between yeah, people who listen to this podcast who are probably very educated in coffee compared to people who just come in off the street and 
compare the price of our coffee to whatever they see in the supermarket and seeing like there's such a big gap. Why does yeah. it have to be so expensive? Yeah. We have all the answers why it's more expensive, why it should be more expensive, but we still need to do a better job on, on yeah, providing an easy to understandable framework for, for getting that knowledge in for people, I think. Mm. Yesterday there was an article in a Norwegian newspaper uh, referring to the sea market, which is the commodity coffee price, being above two dollars, and now uh, the supermarket coffee will probably cost five kroners more, which is yeah. fifty cents more, more or less. Um, and then there was an interview with a couple of students, and they say, "Well, we are addicted to coffee, so we are willing to pay five kroners more as long as the farmer is getting paid enough." And I thought to myself, "If they only knew." <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things we do see is that, uh, and I don't have any statistical numbers on this, but this is just my my hunch, is that as soon as the sea market price goes up, the roasters are very quick to increase the price, but when it falls down again, the price doesn't go down. No. Peter was saying the exact same thing when this started. Like it, it started half a year ago in Denmark, where these we saw these price increases, and there was news articles here from some of the big roasteries, and you saying the exact same thing. That this happened every time. Yeah. They increase the price, and then when it drops, they don't decrease the price for consumers. It's just that the farmer price goes mm. down, and it's such an unfair like uh, yeah. proposition. And you can see, like historically, if you look at how the price fluctuates, if you look down to like the end of the 1980s, where the market was liberalized, you see there are these peaks that goes up to around where we are now mm. for about two years' time, and then you have eight to ten years where it's below cost yeah, yeah. of production, below $1.35 or something. Eight to 10 years, then the next peak of around two years, and then it's like a drought again. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, this is, uh, I had this conversation, conversation with uh, Elias in Colombia as well, and you know, I tried to explain to him because he asked me like, why is the price going up now? And I explained about the frost in Brazil, which is a big coffee producer. When they have frost, uh, a lot of the trees go dormant or dead. or So then it takes a couple of years before they produce a lot of coffee again. And in this period, when the prices are high, people start planting more coffee <laughs> because the prices are high. But it takes two, three years for the trees to produce. And then after two, three years, the prices drop. That's probably why you're seeing this. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and then you need to add. I was on, I'm not an economist myself, but I was on Danish radio a few years ago uh, with, with an economist who specialized in commodity markets, global commodity markets, and so on. And he also added that one thing is the physical trade, because that's what we know from basic economic theory the price is set by supply and demand. Yeah. Uh, and it, it should be the physical supply and demand. So there's a frost that takes down the physical uh, supply, and then they start growing more, there's more uh, supply over a few years. But because the coffee market is set on that C market price on the stock exchange, uh, you can also look at, at how much coffee is sold forth and back at the stock exchange. Mm. And it's every time there's one kilo produced in the world, it's sold 15 times forth and back. On 15 the times? Yeah, and that exaggerates the price fluctuations. Yeah. So the supply and demand is may maybe the underlying mechanism but it's exaggerated by all the speculation in now, okay, I hear about the frost, so when will the price rise? Okay, I think if I buy now, then, then, uh, then I can make money on, on the speculation. And that's, that's the kind of thing that is 15 times as much business in wow. the coffee world as, as what's the physical trade. And that's why the, the fluctuations are just crazy. And in theory, 
I think the defense for, for having a stock exchange like, like that is that it should actually stabilize the, the market, the prices, that you have someone who is speculating a little bit. But I think it's pretty obvious in the coffee industry that it's not stabilizing. It's, yeah. it's more exaggerating. So it's a very volatile market. market. One of the things that I told Elias as well is that, uh, yeah, the price is high now, but it's going to drop. For, that's we know for sure historically it's, it's going to go down again. But uh, the fertilizer price doubled in Colombia and that's not going to drop. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so what happens then when the costs are much higher? The minimum wage was just rising in, in Colombia. Mm. Uh, what's going to happen to the farmers then? Yeah. You know? Because yeah. then they need subsidies and if they don't get that, uh, maybe yeah. avocado or marijuana or something else is more lucrative. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So where are we heading? I mean, <laughs> and that's again the big picture. I think SGA made a few years ago a pretty nice study on like the global trends that that uh, where was the Arabica was around I think it was fifty percent in nineteen ninety of the global market. The expectations is that if the trends follow us now, uh, it will be less than twenty percent in twenty thirty. Wow! Uh, because uh, was the Arabica is just too expensive to to produce. Yeah. So it's all going all the new markets that are consuming more and more coffee, it's met by robusta production. Yeah. So that's where, where the, the big global scale of, of coffee is going, is, is towards robusta. Yeah. So that's why I think we can keep on drinking good coffee, but if we want to keep on drinking just average good coffee, not niche specialty Tim Vellenbo or Coffee Collective coffee, just averagely good Arabica coffee, yeah. then we need to, it's our own, own interest to make sure the farmers are getting a better price, otherwise yeah. it'll shift to to some hybrids with Robusta or something else. Wow, I didn't know that actually. Uh, we need to start soon wrap it up, but uh, I think uh, one of the things that I love about talking to farmers is that they have a very different perspective on things than we do. And uh, one of the things that Marisabella Moises told me many years ago, uh, there are farmers we buy from in Honduras. They said, like, we are not after the highest possible price. We just want stability and commitment. Like they want yeah. to be able to plan ahead for the next year, the two next years. So if they know the price is, let's say three and a half dollars, which may be not the highest or good enough price, but at least they know. Yeah, and that's 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 back to that, like uh, the pr price fluctuations. I think it, it's crazy to think about, if you really think about it, because most coffee farmers harvest once a year. They have one harvest, that's the majority of the income. For some, it's their entire income. And then there's these, maybe some eggs and some chickens and stuff they sell on the side. But imagine that you were to get your whole salary paid out once a year. But until I paid you, you had no idea what I was going to pay you. And it could be twice as much one year and then it could be you know, sliced to a quarter the next year. And you didn't know until that point that you, you got to get your money. That's an absurdity to us who are so used to you know, good you know, working conditions and, and so on in, in a company. But that's the reality for most coffee farmers. Mm. Um, and I think it, it's one of the reasons why we are so adamant also on building relationships with coffee farmers and not just shopping around for new coffees every year, yeah. but try to, to grow together with the farmers. And I remember this like the first time we bought Kini in, in Kenya, uh, I think it was 2009 or 8 or 9. And we bought, I think, 10 bags the first year, and then 20 bags the next year, and then 40 bags. Mm. And... Uh, and one year there was actually like super high prices, I think it was 2010, where there was like very low um, harvest, the global prices peaked. Um, it was like this perfect storm for the farmers. And there was even talks about like 
bags of coffee being sold in the auction for $1,000 per bag. This is a 50 kilo bag. Um, historic high prices and the farmers came to us like, oh yeah, we, we've heard about this, we want the same. And we couldn't actually at that time offer the same. But we said, well, we can offer 800, which is, by the way, I should say, this is like still twice as much as some of the top double A's are sold in the auction, but mm -hmm. we're gonna offer 800. But what we'll promise you is that we'll come back next year if the quality is good and we'll buy again. And that's, that's actually when I remember this like vividly standing outside the, the dry mill and shaking hands with the farmers making this deal and then them saying like we, we're really happy to sell you and I mean it's a high price but and maybe we could have pushed you for higher but it's more important for us that you come back next year mm. and that we have a relationship and this is now over you know this is 11 12 years ago mm. and we're still buying from them and now we're buying I think we, this year we're buying 400 bags Wow. Uh, and we're actually paying, uh, I think this year we are paying, I forget, I should know this. I just <laughs> finished six, six and a half dollar a pound at least for, yeah. for exactly. the yeah. yeah. So a, a super high price, higher than we were able to pay the first years, but it's for this amount now. Yeah. So now it actually like really makes a difference. Yeah. Um, and that's really like our biggest incentive, I think, as a company to grow is to be able to have that purchasing power, to be able to not go down in price, but actually go up in price and buy mm. more mm. from each farmer. Yeah. Um, and we really, yeah, I hope that we can do this more and more and we can you know, meet new farmers and, and have that effect on them because that's where it actually has an impact. Mm. Mm. Transforms lives. Hopefully, but I also don't want to take, you know, I don't want to take the, how to say, um, take too much credit either. It is a long struggle and still like with Kiini, even though we're buying 400 bags, we're still buying, you know, something like maybe 15% of the entire production. Mm. So it has a huge impact because that might account, the 15% we buy might account for like 30% of their income. Mm. So it, it really has a lot, but it's still dependent on what is all the rest of the coffee sell for. Mm. Um, and that's with cooperatives, with private farms, it's a little easier yeah. to have that like feeling of, okay, I'm making that impact on this farmer. Mm. But I still think it has, you know, it's easy to see the, the result on a private farmer, but I think 65% of the coffee in a country like Kenya, and I think globally actually, is produced not by private farmers, but by smallholders mm. who sell cherries to a cooperative or to a washing station. And if we really want to have an impact on the multitude of lives in these poor regions, I think we still have to yeah, make system that benefits those people as well as the private farmers as yeah. well. I feel like adding in a little bit here because there's this discussion going on that I also mentioned before is how many percent should you buy from a farmer? What is what is the best if you only buy a few percent at a good price? Does that matter? Um, I think if you look at it just as a healthy business, I don't think any of us, at least that's very clear for us, we never wanted to have one wholesale client that would be maybe taking 50% of our yeah. sales because we would be way too much dependent on that yeah. Yeah. particular client. And I think that's the same goes for the farmers. If you come and buy 100% of the farmers harvest that might be good as long as you live. Yeah. But if your business is going bankrupt, well, they, they have a, an issue. Or if you choose to say, okay, now we had a poor year in our financials, so I need to cut my costs. Mm -hmm. You come down, you have way too much power because they can't, they can't really shift because they are very dependent on that individual roaster. And then, I mean, that's, that's a very basic, I think, thing in, in, in doing healthy businesses. You shouldn't be depending on, yeah. on too few clients. But also remember when you went to Kenya many years ago, you had a, I remember you came back and told about, you'd met with a, with a chairman of a cooperative 
and he had been telling about how they signed this long-term deal with one of the multinationals, and we won't mention names here. Um, but, and he was so proud of that. They had this, I think it was five or 10 year contract with them, but the price that they had agreed to was super low. Yeah. So it made no sense. But it's again, he had taken that price and were happy with it to some extent, um, because at least it, it didn't allow for the fluctuations. Yeah. So he had certainty, but he had certainty at such a low price that it probably didn't even meet the cost of production. And so it, it can be really, really bad as well to have those kind of like buying, we are going to buy all your coffee. Yeah. And we're going to make this fixed price contract for you. That sounds really great. But if the price isn't good enough, then it doesn't mm -hmm. matter. It's not going to make any positive impact. But, but that also points to the point you had, Tim, with that the fluctuations is yeah. by itself yeah. a big challenge for the farmers. So yeah. that they are willing to commit to a less than market price mm -hmm. as long as the certainty that shows like how big of a challenge it is for the yeah. farmers. With the, with the fluctuations. I see with Elias, I mean, I'm very much involved with the Finca Tandana in mm -hmm. Colombia, and uh, we buy 130 to 150 bags per year, but he produces maybe 400, and we're really struggling to find buyers that are willing to pay uh, the price that is needed in order to produce the coffee in the way that people want, yeah. but are not willing to pay for it. Yeah. And this is a huge struggle. So. Maybe we can sell another 50 to 80 bags to other roasters that are paying a good price and then the rest is dumped in the market. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think also the struggle is to find enough buyers. <laughs> yeah. yeah, It's easy to find farmers, but... Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's a big, big issue. And of course, when you have those farmers, you, you feel like, I mean, we feel like we want to support them and yeah. they know all the good stuff they're doing and so on. So. It's easy to, to want to buy more. Yeah. yeah. Cool. I think, uh, Peter, you need to go and pick up your kids. Yep. In the yes. <laughs> so I thank you very much for joining me for this episode. I, we, I think we could talk about this for 10 hours. Yeah, sure. for sure. We didn't even cover B Corp or, <laughs> you know, the growing of the coffee shops and all these other aspects of the yeah. business. But I also think that's totally fine <laughs> to a large extent because We've often talked about this with sustainable and how we want to be sustainable in the company and, and so on and how misused the word sustainable yeah. actually is. And I think for us, the, the, the main battle, you can say, or the main reason we're in the world is to work on this, on fixing that uh, inequality and that broken uh, way of trading coffee. But I think all these other things that we're doing really, it has to support that mission. It has to work around that in, in order that we can do this, not just for 10 or 15 years, but do this for a lifetime and hopefully yeah. create a company that lives much longer than, than we live and, mm. and works in this way. So uh, we'll do another podcast. Uh, Let's do it. 20, 20 years or so and then... No, I'll be back in, I'll be back in Copenhagen uh, soon so we can maybe talk about uh, the other aspects of your business, which is very admirable as well. And I think uh, it's interesting to hear about because it really inspires other companies to at least do 10% better. You know, that would make the world a little bit better, I think. So um, thank you for existing. Thank you for coming to the podcast. And thank you for a delicious coffee. Well, thank you for, uh, <laughs> for having us. And uh, yeah. Cool. And to all the listeners, thanks for listening. Uh, we really appreciate it. And please make sure to visit transparency.coffee. Which is where you can see all the companies who have signed the pledge. Uh, that's important to support those companies. There are many companies around the world 
And also, if you're interested in coffee prices, you should download the Specialty Coffee Transaction Guide. Just Google it. I'll probably put some links somewhere. <laughs> and uh, so you can read a little bit more about how coffee is priced. Thanks for listening. Thanks for coming. Thanks for listening. Thanks for having us. Ciao, ciao.